Welcome to Prima's 2022 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Scott Roloff will discuss the anatomy of a lawsuit. Scott is the president of Integer Health Technologies. We will also be joined by Prima's education coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Scott. Thank you, Taekwon. So before we get started on lawsuits, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? No, not at all. I'm uh, both a lawyer and a CPA. I began my law career as a tax lawyer, but then a couple of years in, I switched over to corporate law, doing mergers and acquisitions, IPOs, drafting contracts, that sort of thing. I ended up as a partner at the international law firm Vacant Gump. From there, I went into industry as either the CFO or the general counsel for companies in the healthcare, telecom, and software industries, and I also led a wireless startup in the Caribbean during that period. As a general counsel, which is the head lawyer for a company, I would hire lawyers whenever the company was involved in a lawsuit. About five years ago, I started Integer Health with two other fellows, Dr. Jack McCallum and his brother Bill. And Integer Health is a healthcare analytics company that we combine medical expertise and advanced analytics to quantify healthcare outcomes, which is something that no one else does. In healthcare, everyone knows what they spend for their health plans, their workers' comp programs, their wellness programs, but they really don't know what they get in return for those healthcare dollars. What we try to do these days is measure that return in terms of what quality, which of course is a qualitative measure, not a quantitative one, and it's in terms of process measures, what a doctor did or didn't do, or whether the patient even liked the doctor. The input into that healthcare equation are the claims dollars. What we need to do is have the output in dollars and cents too so that we can combine the two and calculate our returns. And we need to measure what really matters. That's the outcome to the patient. Did the patient get better? And if they did, how much did it cost and how long did it take? And that's the problem that Energy Health solves. What we do is we quantify healthcare outcomes, put a dollar and cent value on them. So now the input into that healthcare equation, the healthcare dollars, are in the same medium of dollars and cents as the output. There was actually an article written in Prima's magazine, Public Risk, on how we did this for the city of Fort Worth and drove down their costs by 23%. There was a similar article in D Magazine about our work with the city of Fort Worth entitled, Doing the Impossible, Better Care at Lower Cost. So why should anyone out there listening care about what happens in a lawsuit? Well, eventually, everyone's going to be touched by a lawsuit in some form or fashion. It might be that you just go out to the mailbox every couple of years and get a jury summons and have to go down to the courthouse. Wouldn't you like to know why you were or were not selected to be on that jury? Other folks might handle some part of the lawsuits for their employers. A lot of employers just consider lawsuits a cost of doing business. You might have to give a deposition or testify trial. If you don't know what's going on, that can be quite scary. And then, of course, the most terrifying thing of all, what if you get sued personally? You certainly want to know what's going on then. So how does a lawsuit begin? Well, it's pretty simple. Somebody complains, either you or the other fellow, your adversary. The question is, what do you do then? Because what you do in those first few moments can set the tone for everything else. If you remember nothing else from today, remember this. The best lawsuit is no lawsuit. Lawsuits are a nasty business. They're very expensive, they're time-consuming, and they're emotionally draining. You want to nip it at the bud and avoid them if you can. So how can you do that? Well, you can listen and be empathetic. 
listen to the other fellow, let him blow off steam. What do they think? What do they feel? Put yourself in their shoes. You want to ask open-ended questions, kind of elicit information, but you don't want to box the other fellow in. And if you're the person doing the complaining, you want to be calm. You might be complaining to the person that didn't even wrong you. It might be somebody in HR. You want to be calm, but you want to be careful what you say. When you, you want to be empathetic and say, tell the other person you're, you're sorry that they're in the position they are, that they feel the way that they do, but you don't want to take responsibility for it because that can be used against you later on. Okay, what if that doesn't work? Well, then you have a lawsuit because all it takes is several pieces of paper and a couple hundred dollars to file a lawsuit in America. And when you have, the first thing you have to do when you have a lawsuit is you have to hire your lawyer. And here's where people make their first mistake. Lawyers are not a commodity. Some are better than others, and they do all kinds of different things. And you want to hire the lawyer that's best for your particular case. You don't want to go and hire your friend who happens to be a lawyer. So how do you go about picking the lawyer? What do you look for? Well, the first thing you want to look for is a trial lawyer called a litigator. You don't want a paper pusher like I am. You want someone that actually goes to trial. And a lot of trial lawyers, they take in cases, but they actually don't make it to trial that often. They file motions with the court and things like that, but they don't get in front of a judge and a jury. You want a trial lawyer that goes to court a lot, and when they do go to court, they win. You also want someone that specializes in your type of case. If someone slipped on your property and broke their arm, you don't want a lawyer that specializes in contract cases. But one final thing to note, you want to beware the rainmaker. Who's the rainmaker? Well, the rainmaker is the partner at a big law firm that your boss wants you to hire because they golf with them at the country club. And rainmakers are the most powerful lawyers in law firms because they control the clients. And rainmakers come in two flavors. They're either very good lawyers or they're very bad ones. The ones that are very good lawyers, everyone knows they're good lawyers, especially other lawyers who will refer cases to them. The ones that aren't good lawyers, they're salesmen. They're selling legal services, but they could just as well be selling used cars. Because as a salesman, they're going to tell the potential client what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. So how can you, a non-lawyer, tell the difference? Well, the lawyer, the rainmaker that's a very good lawyer, they're going to keep their clients forever because their clients will love them and stay with them year after year. For the lawyer that's just a salesman, well, they don't keep their clients around. It's kind of one and done. They get that client in the door for that case by telling them exactly what they want to hear. But after that, things don't go so well. And the client will never use them again. We always hear about attorney-client privilege. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. When you watch a lawyer TV show, they usually bundle together two different concepts when they're talking about attorney-client privilege. They combine what's called the confidentiality obligation with the actual attorney-client privilege. First, confidentiality. A lawyer has an ethical duty to keep what their client tells them confidential. Not supposed to go home and talk to their spouse about it. They're not supposed to talk in a crowded elevator about it. They're supposed to keep it confidential. That's separate from the actual attorney-client privilege, which is a, a rule of evidence for the courtroom. Say that you were accused of murder You probably will have told your lawyer whether you committed the murder or not so they could prepare your defense. Well, this privilege prevents the prosecutor at trial from calling your lawyer as a witness and asking your lawyer what you told them. You as the client have the privilege to prevent the lawyer from testifying. And it's very important because it allows clients to speak freely with their lawyers. So after you have a lawyer, what happens next? Well, then the lawsuit begins. 
And it begins when the lawyer for the plaintiff, the person bringing the lawsuit, files a paperwork with the court, their pleadings. And depending upon what your court you're in, these are either called a complaint or a petition. And it'll set out the facts, the legal theory why the plaintiff believes the defendant harmed them, and the compensation that the plaintiff wants the defendant to pay, which we call damages. About three weeks later, the defendant's lawyer is going to file an answer with the court. And after that, the discovery phase begins, which is a lot of hurry up and wait. We don't have trial by ambush in America. Each side has to tell the other side what their evidence is. The discovery phase has several different forms. First one are written interrogatories. One side prepares written questions that they send to the other side that they have to answer under oath. Then there are requests for production. One side asks the other side to produce documents that they have in their possession. After you go back and forth a little bit, you have requests for admission. One side will ask the other side to admit something so they don't have to approve it at trial. So why would you admit something? Well, if you don't admit it, if you just deny it, and they go ahead and they prove it at trial and incur that extra expense, you're going to have to pay their legal fees that they incurred to prove it. And then you get to depositions. What's a deposition? In a deposition, you go to a big law firm and sit in a conference room with your lawyer, the other side's lawyer. You'll have a stenographer there taking everything down. You'll probably be videotaped. And the other lawyer will ask you questions that you have to answer under oath. And they're not very nice questions. Well, they start off real easy. What's your name? What's your occupation? They try to get you at ease so you let your guard down. And then somewhere near the end of the deposition, when you're tired and you're thinking, well, I got through it, it really wasn't that bad, bam, that's when they ask you what they really wanted to ask you all along. And you better not lie because you're under oath. Remember, it was President Clinton's deposition that got him impeached and his law license suspended. The famous, it depends what your definition of is, is. And it's right before the depositions when people get real serious about settling the case. Because the executives, the bigwigs, who were so gung-ho to sue the other side, or they're going to kick the you-know-what out of them at trial, they're scared of having to give their deposition. Oh, they're okay with you giving your deposition, but they don't want to have to give theirs. And the way that they can avoid giving their deposition is to settle the case. Do most cases settle? Yes, about 90% of all civil cases are going to settle or somehow be resolved before going to trial. And the first thing, there are going to be advantages to settling. First of all, settlements can be confidential. Verdicts are not. They're out there in the public. Also, when you settle, you're in control. You decide when you settle and on what terms you're willing to settle. If you go to trial, it's in the hands of a judge and jury. In fact, a lot of judges will require the parties to go to mediation before they'll set a case for trial. And a mediation is basically a settlement negotiation that's headed by a mediator. And the mediator is someone that's skilled in orchestrating compromises. The mediator does not decide the case. The mediator just tries to help the parties settle the case themselves, which is distinguishable from arbitration. Arbitration is a private trial. And a lot of contracts will require the parties to arbitrate instead of sue each other. If you look at your, your contracts that you have, especially your brokerage contracts, they probably will require you to go to arbitration instead of going to court and suing. And there are rules in a courtroom. You just can't say or do anything. When you're in arbitration, the arbitrator who decides the case, they don't have to follow those rules. Everything's confidential, and you can't appeal the arbitrator's decision 
like you could at juries. So if you don't settle or arbitrate, then you go to trial? Yes. And there are two types of trials, a jury trial and a bench trial. In a jury trial, the judge decides the law and the jury decides the facts. In a bench trial, there is no jury. The judge decides both the facts and the law. And it's either party can demand to have a jury trial. So you only have a bench trial if both parties agree to it. Now, bench trials tend to be a little quicker and looser than jury trials. Because there are these rules, you can't just do or say anything. Every time something comes up before a jury, well, the judge has to stop and then rule on it, whether it can be heard as evidence or not. If it's just the judge in a bench trial, they'll likely let things go. And then when they go back in their chambers to decide the case, at that point, they'll decide, well, whether that evidence really met the rules and can be considered or not. Here in Texas, where I am, a jury in a district court, which is the courts that hear bigger cases, consists of 12 folks. But for lesser courts that hear smaller cases like county courts, it's only six. In a criminal case, you have to have a unanimous verdict. But in a civil case in district court, you only need five, six of the jurors. So 10 out of 12, or if you're in county court, five out of six. So how do the lawyers and judge go about picking the jury? Well, the answer is they don't. It works like this. You'll get a jury summons in the mail, and it'll tell you to show up at the courtroom, the courthouse, at a particular day and time. You'll go to the courthouse, go through security, and you'll go to the clerk's office on the first floor. Before that day, the judges in the courtrooms upstairs will have already told the clerk how many prospective jurors they'll need. The clerk will assign you to a particular court and give you a questionnaire that the lawyers in that courtroom have prepared. And they'll have general information like, what's your name, what's your occupation? And then they'll have specific questions pertaining to the case. For example, if it's a criminal case, Defense lawyer is going to have a question and they're asking if you have any relatives that work for law enforcement. They think if your brother's a cop, you'll lean toward the prosecution. Similarly, the prosecutor is going to have a question there asking whether you have any relatives in jail. So once you answer your questionnaire, you turn it in with all the other folks assigned to that particular case, and then you up to the courtroom and upstairs. There you wait outside until the bailiff calls you in by name and tells you to go to sit in a assigned seat, beginning with seat number one way up in the front. At this point, if you're assigned to seat number one or two or 12, you're not very happy because we don't pick who goes on a jury. We pick who's not going to be on the jury, starting with that person in seat one. And if we don't pick them not to be on the jury, they will be. At this point, the vadir begins, which is French means see to speak. And that's where the lawyers begin by telling you a little bit about their case. And after that, the lawyers and often the judge begin to ask the jurors questions. They begin with general questions, raise your hand if this or raise your hand if that. And one of the general questions will always be, do you know anybody involved in this case? The judge, the lawyers, the parties. Because here in America, we want our jurors to be neutral and not know anybody involved in the case. And that's exactly the opposite of the way it started back in England when they started to have juries. Back then, they wanted the jurors to know the parties because that way they knew that whether they could believe them or not. For example, if you had the village idiot come by and make some outlandish claim, you already knew they were the village idiot and could factor that in. So after those general questions, then the lawyers look at the questionnaires. They begin asking specific questions based upon the questionnaires, beginning with the person in seat one, because if they don't eliminate that person, they're going to be on the jury. So after those questions, then the lawyers and the judge huddle, and they begin to eliminate folks. 
The first thing they can do is either lawyer can ask that someone be eliminated for cause. There's a reason that they shouldn't be a juror. For example, they know somebody. Or we've all seen that one of the questions will be, raise your hand if you can't be fair in this case. There's always somebody that raises their hand because they think if they raise their hand, they'll get out of jury duty, and sometimes they're right. So after the judge decides who's eliminated for cause, that each side gets what's called peremptory challenges. They can eliminate anyone, anyone for any reason or no reason, except an illegal reason, the most obvious being the, the person's race. So once the lawyers do their preemptory challenges, then the judge looks at the person seated in seat one, and if they haven't been eliminated, they ask them to go sit in the jury box. Once you have 12 sitting in that jury box, that's your jury. What happens after the jury is seated? Well, each side tells their story, but it's not a conversation. You have to tell your story by asking your witnesses questions. And there are rules. You just can't ask anything. And the witnesses' answers have to be based upon their personal knowledge. For example, hearsay isn't permitted. What's hearsay? Well, if you have Bob on the witness stand and you ask Bob, Bob, what did Harry say that tell you that he saw? That's hearsay. Bob didn't see it. And if we want to know what Harry saw, well, we can ask Harry and call him to the witness stand. And then after you do your witnesses, you try to cast doubt on the other witnesses by cross-examining them, asking them questions to try to cast doubt on their, on their story. Now, when you have your witnesses, you can't ask leading questions. But when you're cross-examining the other side's witnesses, you can ask a leading question. And a leading question is simply a question that leads the witness to the answer the lawyer wants. Typically, it's a yes or no question. Example of a leading question would be, when you entered the room, did you see Bob shoot Harry? We answered yes or no. A non-leading form of that question would be, when you entered the room, what did you see? And then after each side tells their story, you're going to go to the jury or the judge in a bench trial. And in the civil cases, it's just what story is more likely than not, a 51% to 49% threshold. If you're in a criminal case, however, the threshold's higher. The prosecution has to prove their story beyond a reasonable doubt. So what goes on in the jury room? Well, it's going to be the wild card in every case. You're going to have some very smart people on that jury, and you're going to have some not-so-smart people on that jury. So if you've got a complicated case, chances are you're going to want the judge to just decide in a bench trial. But chances are, if you want a bench trial for that reason, the other side probably will demand their right to have a jury trial. Now, before sending the jury back to deliberate, the judge is going to give them their instructions what they can talk about back there, what they can't talk about back there, and the type of verdict that they have to render. In a criminal case, it's simply guilty or not guilty. In Texas, where I am, in civil cases, the jury comes back with what's called a, a special verdict. It's a series of questions that the jury has to answer. And based upon those answers, the judge will decide who wins or loses, although it's usually pretty obvious from the answers. And then one thing for you who, folks who will be serving on a jury in the future, after you deliver the verdict, typically the losing lawyer will ask the judge whether he can talk to the jurors. And it's purely voluntary, and the judge will typically say yes. And the, the lawyer will say that they want to talk to the jurors to understand why they decided against them, so they can be a better lawyer in the future. Don't believe them. What that lawyer is doing is they're fishing for jury misconduct. They want to know whether somebody in that jury did something or said something that violated the judge's instructions. Because if they did, the lawyer can ask for a new trial, and the jury can be in some trouble. How many cases typically go all the way through to a jury verdict? Very few. In civil cases, five out of a thousand. 
And even then, the losing side can appeal, which, of course, is going to be a topic for another another podcast. Thanks so much, Scott. Do you have any last thoughts? Yes, Taekwon. I would say if you take nothing away from this podcast, let it be this. The best lawsuit is no lawsuit. As I said before, lawsuits are a nasty business. They're very expensive, they're time-consuming, and they're emotionally draining. You want to avoid them if you can. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.